Oh my goodness, you crazy son of a bitch. Do you have any idea what you've just done? You've just discovered the Marks and Lestrap Show Podcast Hour. This is the show that may or may not be an hour long based on your perception of time and how much I've got to say. So strap yourselves in and prepare your ears for the journey of a lifetime with your host of the Martin Lestrap Show podcast hour, me, you idiot. Welcome everybody to the Martin Lestrap Show podcast hour. This is episode number 163. And for this episode, you're going to get a new installment of Rewind. And as a reminder, for anybody who missed episodes 146 and 147, if memory serves me correctly, Rewind is a series that I created for the podcast that allows me to take a look back at some of my most memorable episodes. So this week, we're going back to January 12th, 2015, just about two and a half years ago, all the way back to episode 50, when my guest at the time was former professional wrestler and current WWE announcer Nigel McGuinness. Of course, at the time, Nigel wasn't working for the WWE. In fact, a big part of Nigel's personal narrative is that he's one of the greatest and most respected professional wrestlers of all time who never wrestled in the WWE. Now, in 2013, Nigel made a brilliant documentary about his career called The Last of McGuinness, which is a poignant heartbreaking, bittersweet, but ultimately uplifting story. And as I watched it, I could see so much of myself in Nigel's story. He and I are about the same age, and we both grew up loving the WWF, and eventually it became the WWE for uh, legal purposes because the World Wildlife Foundation uh, got the, the rights to WWF. But that's neither here nor there. The, the point here is that Nigel and I both had dreams of becoming professional wrestlers, uh, and, and we both hoped to one day wrestle for the WWF, which eventually became the WWE. Now, my dreams ended about the same time that I stopped growing, but Nigel, he kept his dreams alive, pursuing his goal of becoming a professional wrestler and one day wrestling in the WWE. Despite the tremendous success that Nigel enjoyed in his wrestling career, he never made it to the WWE, though he did come painfully close. He actually signed a contract at the, at the same time as WWE superstar Daniel Bryan. Ultimately, Nigel's contract was rescinded for reasons that he covers in his documentary, The Last of McGinnis, so I won't go into detail here because I would encourage you to go watch his movie, the last of McGinnis, and then you can find out for yourself ultimately what happened and why his contract was rescinded. Now, while his contract was rescinded, his good friend Daniel Bryan, who uh, during our conversation Nigel affectionately calls Dragon, he would go on to become a main event superstar, eventually headlining WrestleMania 30, where he became the WWE World Heavyweight Champion. Now, when I had Nigel on the podcast back in 2015, he'd made his peace with not ever making it to the WWE, and he was actively pursuing new endeavors, primarily a TV show that he had developed and hoped to produce called LA Fights. Similar to The Last of McGinnis, he was hoping to fund the show via Kickstarter, so one of the reasons he was on my podcast was to promote that campaign. And while we didn't yet know it at the time, what we know today in 2017 is that the Kickstarter campaign for LA Fights ultimately didn't work out. So Nigel was not able to produce this show, LA Fights, that he had worked very, very hard on, on developing. He spent, in fact, 18 months of his life developing the show before he even uh, initiated the Kickstarter campaign. So this was a very, very big investment of of time and energy on Nigel's part. But while LA fights did not happen in the manner of any great fairy tale, Nigel would eventually realize his dream of working in the WWE. So just a few months ago, on December 15th, 2016, the WWE introduced Nigel as their newest broadcaster and he'd be making his debut 
beside the WWE's lead announcer, Michael Cole, as they called the action for the inaugural WWE United Kingdom Championship Tournament. So very briefly, here's Michael Cole making that announcement. I'm very proud to announce today the newest member of our WWE on-air announce team. Uh, this gentleman uh, knows all about independent wrestling, not only here in the United Kingdom, but also in the United States. I've had my eye on him for a couple of years now, and I finally got him here. Uh, he has signed on to be the newest member of our family, and he will begin his broadcasting career alongside me uh, as part of the WWE United Kingdom Championship. Please welcome London's own Nigel McGuinness. Being here today, being part of the WWE family, is to me the realization of my childhood dream. And ladies and gentlemen, that is what is before every one of the 16 competitors who have been chosen specifically for this inaugural tournament. Now, when I was in the ring, I couldn't have imagined having this opportunity. I mean, think about it. Live on WWE Network, on a global stage. The opportunity in two nights to make history and become crowned the very first WWE United Kingdom Champion. It's a huge deal, and like I said, I could not be happier to be here today and to be part of it. Incidentally, if you're a fan of pro wrestling, and I, I know everybody that listens to the show isn't a fan, and in fact, I know some of my listeners couldn't care less about professional wrestling. I get it, so bear with me. For those of you who do enjoy professional wrestling, the WWE's UK tournament was outstanding. It was absolutely outstanding. And Nigel is right at home calling, calling wrestling matches behind the mic. Uh, currently, since that tournament, Nigel has been calling matches for NXT, which, for my money, offers the very best wrestling that the WWE has to offer. Uh, again, for if you are not, if you are part of the uninitiated, if you are not a fan, for the sake of context, NXT is WWE's developmental program. So it's sort of like the minor leagues in a sense, but the wrestlers that perform there are absolutely tremendous. And again. Nigel behind the mic calling the matches he is he is outstanding he is right at home he is really and truly he is right where he belongs so you know I have no doubt that Nigel will eventually make his way to WWE's main shows Monday Night Raw and Smackdown someday very soon and uh you know uh just uh in, in fact just uh just a few days ago, I was uh, I was watching uh, one of NXT's big shows, NXT Takeover in Chicago, and uh, there's Nigel on the TV calling the calling the programming, calling the matches, and for me, it is uh, it's a really it's a really cool surreal experience because on the one hand, I see this uh, terrifically talented guy uh, ultimately living out his dream, working in the WWE, calling matches, and I can't help but recall. The, the the afternoon that he came over to the illustrious Martin Lestrap Show Podcast Hour Studios and sat across from me and we had just a, a, a lovely conversation. So I am so happy and excited for Nigel McGinnis. And I think about, uh, you know, I, I guess I think about, you know, I think about two years prior to when he had no idea what a wonderful turn his life was going to take. So anyway, if all of that sounds good to you, then let's take a ride in the Wayback Machine all the way back to Monday, January 12th, 2015. And let's revisit episode 50 with my guest and future WWE broadcaster, Nigel McGinnis. <laughs> 
I grew up in a small village in the southeast of England called Staplehurst. Uh, it's on the train line from Dover to London. Um, much of these uh, sort of towns sprang up in the 60s where um, people moved there and their parents would go to London every day on the train and come back. It's actually the small village where Charles Dickens nearly died in a car in a train crash as well, well that's cool. in the 1800s. I feel like that's something I should know. I had no idea <laughs> <There you go. laughs> that he almost died. Yeah. Now, you... Uh, you grew up as a huge uh, WWF fan, mm-hmm. as, as I do. We're, we're about the same age. You've got, you. I think you have a few months on me, but we're right. about the same age. So I suspect we were watching all the same stuff at the same time. Yeah. Uh, I know for me, growing up here in uh, Southern California and America in general, uh, the WWF was, it was pretty, uh, pretty ubiquitous, at the very least on Saturday, Sunday afternoons. Uh, how how present was it where you grew up? And uh... not so much because it wasn't on mainstream TV the same way as it was over here. We had to get Sky TV, which is satellite TV, mm-hmm. and it was still in its infancy back when I was growing up. And so I really had to bug my parents for about a year, year and a half before they finally like caved and bought the disc and <laughs> stuck it on the side of the house. And um, yeah, it, I was about when was I thirteen, something like that. Because before then, it was on cable TV, and almost nobody had cable TV in England. We just had the five channels. All right. Channels at the time, you know, and so um, I'd heard about it and I'd, I bought all the magazines, but it was so sort of secretive and exciting and this new show in America. Um, <laughs> but then when we finally got Sky TV, I was sold for good, yeah. You, you mentioned secretive. One thing uh, I know growing up out here, mm. at least when I was a kid, there was something about wrestling, and I don't, I don't think anybody had to tell me, but I just understood that you didn't talk about it. Like you watched it, but it was almost. I don't know. I don't know if it was embarrassing, but like, if, like when I was in school, no one mm. talked about it. But if I found a kid who watched it, we'd go find like a dark corner and talk wrestling all, <laughs> all lunch. But we wouldn't, you know. And like now, I think it's a lot more mainstream. I wonder if there's anything like that in England where you grew up. Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly wasn't the cool thing at school. I remember we had a a charity day where everybody would would do things. They'd sell baked goods or whatever else. And my thing that I did is I videoed the Royal Rumble <laughs> and I I played it and everybody put in like five bucks or five pounds, whatever it was, and you got a wrestler. And if you're a wrestler one, you get half of the proceeds and the rest went to charity, you know. <laughs> so um, it wasn't – I mean, everyone used to enjoy that, but beyond that for the rest of the year – Again, yeah, no one was really into it. It wasn't really cool. And I'd actually gone to America by the time it really started getting cool, sort of 98. I suppose it was 96, 97 when it just yeah. really started picking up and getting popularity. Yeah, that was right at the, uh, I guess, right at the precipice of the Attitude Era and Stone Cold right. Rock. And that was obviously, yeah, huge. Now, uh, again, we're, we're about the same age. I definitely grew up wanting to, to be a professional wrestler. At some uh-huh. point I figured out, once I, I partly I stopped growing, <laughs> it wasn't going to work out for me. Um, but but uh, you're the same, I suspect, group wanted to do it, except you, 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 know, you took that next step and actually pursued a career. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess about how old were you when you sort of, I guess what was the transition from being, you know, I'm a kid, this sounds cool, to, you know what, I can actually do this. There was a couple of incidents. Um, Roddy Piper did a promo on Superstars one day, and it, it was kind of weird because he wasn't setting up a specific match or whatever, but he was sort of, drawing from the Martin Luther King Dare to Dream speech. And he talked about how when he was 15 years old and living on the street and it was pro wrestling that gave him purpose in his life. And I remember him pointing at the screen and going, if there's somebody out there now watching this that wants to be a a wrestler, dare to dream and never give up. And you know you can do it. And I really felt he was talking to me. Um, And that's kind of, you know, it's funny, interesting. Once you get into the business and you start meeting a lot of these people that were your idols growing up. I mean, you know, uh, he came to Ring of Honor about six months ago. So for me, that was huge. Um, And then also Robbie Brookside, who is really one of the last British veterans of the old school when it was on TV over their days, mm-hmm. um, he did a documentary called Video Diaries and he didn't expose any of their business. It was still presented as 100% shoot. Um, but he showed to me that unlike what I'd seen with WWF at the time, you didn't have to be a, a jacked up bodybuilder to be a pro wrestler. You could be an intelligent, normal looking human being. And again, the more I got to know him as I got to be in the industry, the more I realized that was the case. I mean, he's uh, an intelligent person who can have a conversation about politics or music or religion. And he's just, you know, he's really one of the, the greatest in-ring performers in terms of the art form I've ever met. That's awesome. 
Now, did you, uh, I imagine you had a chance to meet uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper when he was at Ring of Honor. Yeah. Uh, did you have a chance to share your story or did you keep that to I, yourself? I didn't. <laughs> you know, I always wait until I've you know met people a few times before I sort of share those stories because yeah. I feel it presents, I don't know, somewhat of a wall, somewhat. You don't want to come oh, across sure. as a sort of like, you know, the, the fan who's yeah. like geeky, eager. And, oh, I'm so <laughs> excited to meet you, you know, because I, I want to, to meet people on a more of a same level. I never wanted to be the guy that I want to meet Hulk Hogan or I want to meet Ric Flair. I wanted to be Hulk Hogan or be Ric Flair. And right. I think... Uh, that, you, that that's an important part of, of transitioning from that, and because I think they were all um, fans yeah. back in their day. I think Flair was obviously, you know, a, a big fan of Buddy Rogers, mm-hmm. you know, growing up. I'm sure, and when he met him, probably you know had to sort of play that same sort of card. Yeah, and that's fair because I mean, because <clears throat> because uh, I figure in your case again, you, you grew up loving you know loving uh, wrestling, and then uh, for most of your adult life, you're in this business. You're uh, uh, interacting with guys who you probably saw on TV a lot, mm. and you know if I, I guess if if you had you know, if you stayed in that mentality of you know I really love this this product I really love these guys it probably would make it difficult to 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 work with them as as peers I suspect somewhat yeah somewhat I mean as I said you know you want to believe that you can be on their level as well um, but at the same time I think it's always nice to be respectful and to say to guys you know you're a big influence on me growing up and uh, I know it means a lot to me when people have come to me now and said that mm-hmm. you know I was a big fan of you back in the day as well Back in the day, God, that sounds terrible, doesn't it? Right? No, 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 it doesn't sound. Why did two thousand and seven go? <laughs> so uh, a couple, a few years ago, I want to say two thousand eleven, two thousand twelve. Mm-hmm. You uh, had an uh, outstanding documentary. You called it "The uh, Last of McGinnis," uh, and it's it's the the documentary itself is great. the The story of how the documentary came about is also for me uh, just as fascinating. Uh, I wonder if you don't mind uh, kind of setting up the documentary a little bit, then we can talk about that. Mm. So long story short, um, I'd wrestled uh, 10, 11, 12 years at that point. Um, I'd had a modicum of success on a mainstream level. Um, it all gone tits up, um, as we like to say in England. <laughs> um, I would contract hepatitis B, uh, and the long and the short of it, that was essentially the end of my career, even though I'd cleared the virus and mm-hmm. now immune. Um, and I really, there was nowhere else for me to go. There was nothing else for me to do within the industry to where I could make the money commensurate to the injuries that more than likely I was going to get as I would continue to age. Mm-hmm. And so I really had no choice but to, you know, do one last tour and go out there and do a lot of the small indie shows that I'd made my name on originally. And so I set up a tour and Colt Cabana was very sort of instrumental. He'd filmed a, a documentary, Wrestling Road Diaries, mm-hmm. about a year before and I, you know, I wasn't sure how to go about it. Do I need a film crew or whatever else? And he said, just do it. He said, get a camera, take it on the road with you and just shoot everything you possibly can. So that's what I did. I got about 70 hours of footage, came back. Um, a very good friend of mine who I also met in the wrestling business, um, he was good enough to buy me a video camera. And then he actually <laughs> bought a computer for me to edit on it as well, oh, you know. Awesome. Um, and really the story of my career and really maybe of my life in general is is fans and friends and family have always supported me because without them, I wouldn't be even close to the person I am today, you know. So I edited uh, trailers for what I wanted to do with the documentary. Mm-hmm. Didn't really know exactly what story I was going to tell at that point because really the the final thing, hadn't happened at that point you know I didn't really know I hadn't had closure and so I put it up on Kickstarter uh, which at the time wasn't in its infancy but still certainly within the wrestling industry not many people had heard about it yeah. still was kind of a new concept and I put up some trailers on Kickstarter and put it out there and social media again even though it was only what, three or four years ago was, was was so different than it is now in terms of you'd put something out there on Facebook and it would not go viral but it would get out to everybody pretty much all the time we were just talking to the boys on the rail over here today I can tweet something or I can put it on Facebook four or five times a day and I'm still hearing people in everyday life in the wrestling industry that go LA fights I've never heard about it tell me about it I mean <laughs> that's just the reality there's so much noise out there but back then I put it out there i asked for 32 grand which a lot of people said was a lot of money and is a lot of money to Mm -hmm. make a documentary but i kind of realized how much it was going to cost how long it was going to take you know i'd have to buy the equipment i'd have to come out here to la to make the contacts and get the music and blah 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 long Mm -hmm. story short that's what i needed to make it a reality i wanted to see if there was interest and i got it in three days and that became part of my resolution that became part of my journey was to understand that yes maybe i didn't make it to wwe maybe i don't have the millions of fans and i can't influence people on the level that you know perhaps uh, a lot of my peers like cm punk or brian danielson can 
Um, but the people that I did influence, I had a profound effect on their life and they were willing to, you know, make um, the documentary a reality because of it. So it was a wonderful story, uh, you know, and uh, it got me to where I am today. It got me to be a video editor. Um, that's what I currently make my living at. And living in Los Angeles is one of the most beautiful places in the world. I go surfing, I do jiu-jitsu, I do yoga. I'm probably the happiest I've been in, in a long, long time. That's awesome. One of the... Uh, uh, uh... Uh, one of the, the things that really comes through in the movie, and you kind of touched on it, mm. is you, uh, well, one, it, it's it's very honest, very raw, which which definitely comes through. And as a viewer, I appreciate that you didn't make an effort to uh, maybe polish something up or, or smooth anything. You really kind of offered up uh, your career in very raw terms, and you were very honest with the, the viewer about, yeah. you know, you had certain expectations for, for your career, certain goals that you wanted to achieve. And uh, the the reality of, of what you achieved didn't quite reconcile with your goals, and that was a very emotionally difficult thing for, uh, for you to deal with, uh, which, uh, which again, you know, kind of comes up in the movie. Um, but you kind of talk now, and, and you touch on it in the movie, but you also talk now about you're at a point in your life where uh, I guess you're probably a few years removed from that last tour, a few years removed from when you did the movie. Yeah. And uh, are you, you know, when you look at your career now, is it, uh, is it uh, easier to look back at your career and enjoy and appreciate it more, or is, are there still un, you know, unresolved feelings of I didn't I didn't do what I wanted to oh, do? Oh, it's still easier. Yeah, it is, it is better now, and I think with time it will continue to to get in that direction. But I'm smart, you know. I don't watch WWE. I don't sort of um, linger over any of the negative aspects. You know, the, I mean, the reality is the, the the fact that I have a job now that pays the bills mm-hmm. is a huge. Um, asset in terms of moving on because you know as you talk to many wrestlers who never make the big money or make to get to the big level if you spend 10 15 of your years of your life doing that and you have no other work experience other than you know minimum wage jobs mm-hmm. now and if it doesn't pay off you're shit out of luck you know what i mean and then it's very difficult to find that place of of contentment you know so the more that i can pay my bills and, and hopefully that will continue to be the case the better that will be and, and i've obviously I still have the ability to do creative projects as well so it's kind of the best of both worlds you know but there are still days every now and again but if you're in far between um where i think about i hear about dragon and how much money he's made and how essentially he's lived the life that i really felt like i wanted to but more importantly that i'd earned as well right. um and it's not about being rich in and of itself it's about being able to make an impact on people and have a positive mm. impact on the world and uh, you know i've always said that it's like if you take a guy like um brad pitt or angelina jolie for example yeah you can say what you want about who they are as a person. You don't really know, but people listen to what they say. And if they really want to get behind a cause or something like that, they can have a profoundly positive effect on the world because of their fame. Because in the West, I think we really do admire fame, yeah. arguably more than anything else, certainly more than kindness, uh, <laughs> which unfortunately I think is, is, is a problem. Yeah. But thankfully, I think there are a lot of famous, very kind people as well. Darren Brown uh, is a magician and a mentalist from England, and I think he's one of the greatest performers, but also one of the nicest kindest people in the world as well so you've got this uh really cool project that you're working on it's called la fights yeah. and uh from from what i can gather it seems to be a, a a collaboration of your career as a wrestler um but maybe also a collaboration of of your your new career sort of getting into video editing production uh things of this nature uh i Really, really love this idea. I'm going to let you introduce it, but then I have, I'd have i love to talk about that. Great, thank you. Yeah, it's a six-episode TV series that completely evolves pro wrestling. And if this sounds like a pitch, it's because it is. It's because I've done <laughs> tons of media, and I've obviously did the pitch videos for the Kickstarter as well. Um, but really, the idea came into being... It started about maybe five years ago when I was working for TNA, which is the secondary company within pro wrestling. And I'm sitting there and they weren't using me at the time. And I'm looking at the numbers and I'm going, why can't we compete? You know, why, why are we WWE light? Why, if someone gave me carte blanche, if someone said, how could you change the industry on every level? What would you do? If you didn't have to answer to people higher up or whatever else, what would you do? And I started to think about that. And it grew and I put more and more time into it. And really, it wasn't until I'd retired and I'd finished all the work on the documentary that I said, OK, this is it. Because they say, you know, as you know, write about what you know. Mm-hmm. And I know pro wrestling. Um, 
And so I thought, how can I do something within this genre? Well, I've had this idea for a long time. So let's, you know, what would I do? I, I think the seasonal structure has never really been done in pro wrestling. Lucha Underground, uh, the, the show that's on the El Rey Network right now, mm-hmm. it's a similar structure, but the evolution in, in ring isn't there. I believe that because of what we know about MMA nowadays, people have a different perception of what a real professional fight looks like. Therefore, you could watch wrestling in the 80s. You could see Mr. T or you could see Hulk Hogan hulking up and, you know, big boot, leg drop, one, two, three, and you could kind of suspend your disbelief. But now if you're a young guy full with testosterone, you know that doesn't work, (laughs) you know. And there are a lot of things within pro wrestling that if you're a pro wrestling fan – you let it go, you know, as a sleeper hold. The arm drops once, drops twice, and now he's coming back to life. Two elbows, hit the ropes, watch the low knee. It's, this is, it's the same paradigm that's been going again and again and again. Um, and I think we limit ourselves because of it. I think that wrestling as an art form has a huge spectrum, and we've only painted on a very small portion of the canvas so far. And so what I want to show is what is possible within the genre. I want to show that storylines can be as complex as shows like Breaking Bad or Walking Dead. You can't write 52 weeks a year of it. You can write 52 weeks a year of Breaking Bad. But I've written a six six episodes. It's taken me 18 months to do it, you know, to have all the characters that have genuine storylines. And I've drawn from a lot of my experience in pro wrestling because I don't believe we need to create storylines or characters for people necessarily because they were already there. I mean, if you watch any documentaries, even aside from mine, um, that's what's really engaging is about the characters behind the scenes. Now, whether you present pro wrestling as scripted, um, as in a documentary and you see guys putting matches together or whatever else, or you present it as real, um, much like in a regular traditional wrestling show, it's really the backstory of people. And it's, it's in with any story, you know what I mean? And I, I would hesitate to say people will watch people thumb wrestle. If you care <laughs> about the people enough and you understand that the outcome of the match has implications. If a guy stood beside us with a gun and you know whoever loses his thumb wrestling match is going to get shot in the head, now you care. Now you watch that thumb. You yeah. know, that's my theory. There's a lot of thoughts being going into it. People have been asking for a different product for a long time. Every Monday night. Oh, no, I don't watch the product now, you know. I mean, I just don't because of my history. Yeah. And on top of that, I'm just really not interested. It just didn't really appeal to me, you know. It, it, they have the demographic and I'm not part of it for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am on social media and I do hear every Monday night people going I hate this and you know <laughs> I'm going to stick pins in my eyes and I but you continue to watch and you continue to support the product you know really the the beauty of living in a democracy and living in a capitalist country is that you vote with your wallet you know and you vote with your ratings and if you don't like a product the best thing you can do is just turn it off and do not watch it and a lot of people have mm-hmm. you know in the late 90s there were 10 million people watching Monday night wrestling now it's down to about three or four million. Um, and those six million people, for the most part, are still alive and they're around somewhere and they <laughs> want to see a product. And I believe I have that product. But for that to happen, like anything else in a capitalist country, you need the money. And that's the reality. Yeah, I love this idea. And and uh, not that just a few days ago, uh, I, I was I was thinking about this because I'm one of those people who uh, I, I grew up loving wrestling. I still enjoy wrestling. Um, but when I watch it, when I watch it now... Uh, on the one hand, every now and then there's a flash of something that I'm that I'm really engaged with, and I'm and I, and I find I'm, and I'm really entertained. Yeah. But I find a lot of the time I'm watching with the hope that uh-huh. that, that something something will be the way it was, or something will remind me of how much I I enjoyed it. Uh, part part of what I think that was for me, anyway, is like you know, as a kid, um, uh, I, I think as a kid when wrestling was well, I, well actually talking about the WWF. They primarily appeal to kids, so it mm. makes makes perfect sense that I was a kid. That's when I loved it the most. Sure, it kind of worked out when I was a teenager, young adult. They got into the Attitude Era. They were sort of, uh, they were, uh, you know, sitting, you know, building a product for a more adult audience. Yeah. Now they've kind of gone backwards and primarily, uh, you know, going for for kids and and, mm. and families, which makes perfect sense. But as you kind of explained, uh, a fan like myself, I I still enjoy wrestling. I'd still like to enjoy it, but. Um, in the same way that, uh, you know, it, you know, in, in the, as it, say we're talking about comic books, sure. um, you know, I, I look at, uh, I look at Batman and, and so Batman as a, as a kid that had the, the series in the sixties, very campy, very silly. Mm-hmm. Uh, then in the, in the mid eighties, Frank Miller had the, the, the dark Knight returns, which was, I remember trying to read it as a kid. It didn't make sense to me. I didn't yeah. understand. It was sort of meant for adults. Then, uh, then in the about five, six, seven years ago, you got the dark Knight trilogy 
And so, so I kind of like that idea of uh, have sort of a product that kind of that can kind of grow up with you, or right. a genre that can kind of grow up sure. with you. So this idea of LA fights sounds ideal. That the WWE certainly they can keep appealing to kids Absolutely. and families, but it would be great for a fan like me to have a product like this, where it's it's wrestling. It's sort of geared to an adult audience. Uh, it's not sort of uh, you know, pandering down to say the the lowest common dom- exactly. denominator, intelligence wise. Yeah. Um. So I I I really love this. Now, as far as the 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 show itself, as far as the the way you imagine it, mm. um, you referenced uh, you referenced you know Breaking Bad. Uh, I've I've uh, read some different interviews with you where you've also referenced uh, Louis Louis C K show. Sure. Um. And so, uh, the the Louis show, I can I can easily see a correlation between that where a guy is a stand up comedian. But he's also showing, you know, his uh, his life with his with his two daughters. He talks about being a divorced dad. Yeah. Uh, talks about, you know, the struggles of trying to make it as a comedian. And then in the show, when you see him on stage telling jokes, all of a sudden the the jokes he's telling, you realize, oh, he's I've met his daughters. That's cool. Yeah. And, and, it, and there's a there's a there's a much stronger connection. Mm. Um, for you, I, I wonder is that is that you know not that you're not that you're not that you're taking that as a template, but. Mm. Uh, is it, do you imagine LA fights will be like that? Um, and and also I'm kind of curious that the ratio of say wrestling to to out of the ring storytelling that you imagine per episode. Yeah. Um, well, in terms of you talk about a template, I mean I, I've written the script that's fully written, fledged out. Um, so uh, and that was over the last eighteen months. I only watched Louis C.K.'s show over the last three months, so mm-hmm. it was like, oh yeah, this is kind of a cool idea as well. You know, um, uh, uh, the office and how it was shot. Um, in terms of that mockumentary style, I think that is conducive to pro wrestling because pro wrestlers aren't actors. Mm-hmm. Um, so for us to try and ignore the camera, it's obvious we're ignoring the camera. I think that's an issue. Right. Um, whereas if we can shoot it as a documentary, we can look at the camera and it makes sense and it encourages us to act and emote because we're actually interacting with everything that's around us, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but in terms of how much wrestling, it'll be a lot less. Um, and this, you know, certainly if you're a wrestling purist, and you want to see wrestling go back to the days where it was all wrestling and ladies and gentlemen in the ring now, and that's it. This isn't your product for you. And I don't think there's many people that really legitimately want to see that because I think even if you watch a UFC pay-per-view, unless there's a lot of fights that have a lot of big build behind them, after an hour or two, you kind of burn out on it, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and uh, so I really believe that the wrestling should be the icing on the cake, not the cake itself. And that's what I've really built this towards. Uh, I've written them. They're, they're built for an hour of commercial TV. So that's 44 minutes of, of actual um, footage. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say maybe a quarter or a third would actually be in ring and the rest would always be outside of the ring. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, uh, the UFC and I, I suspect you probably are as sure. well. Yeah. And I find that, uh, especially when they have a, uh, a, a really big match, like about a, a week or so ago, it was, uh, you know, John Jones and Daniel Cormier. Right. And, you know, uh, you know, primarily aside from, uh, the fight itself, you know, two of the top guys in the world, what really made that exciting was a uh, you know they they got in a fight at a press conference they were they they seemed legitimately to dislike each other and mm-hmm. they talked about that in the media yeah uh, the UFC does really good you know countdown shows where they kind of build everything up yeah and it kind of sounds like LA fights would be you know drawn from that idea of you know the the fights part of it but what really what really gives this fight some some weight is all this stuff you know and, and even if even if there's not a genuine conflict between the two. Uh, two guys going against each other. Yeah. Just knowing that a guy, you know, I've seen, uh, who was it? Uh, Chris Weidman a couple years ago before he fought Anderson Silva. Mm. Part of his story leading up to it was he, you know, lived in New York. There was, uh, uh, I, I forget the, you know, the, the big hurricane that, you know, flooded his house. Uh, and so you kind of saw that, you know, he was a guy, he was a fighter trying to make it. His house was flooded. You feel this personal connection sure. with him. All of a sudden he's in the cage and you, you you know you're you're almost rooting for him not just because you want to see him beat this guy but man this guy fucking deserves it because look what he went through yeah I can easily see you know the, a show like this uh, doing that sort of thing which is part of what's exciting about it right uh, what sort of uh, and, and you know obviously as a writer myself uh, re- you know don't reveal any ideas that you don't feel comfortable <laughs> re- revealing but what sort of uh, storylines or themes do you imagine this touching on? Uh, well, just to draw back from from my experience as someone that had a dream for all their life and has put 100% into it and didn't quite get it, um, it, 
part of this show and part of the reason I'm trying to pitch it on Kickstarter is it would be my return to the ring. Mm -hmm. I'd actually be on the show and essentially playing a very similar sort of character to my own that had concussion issues and, that you know, um, walked that fine line between walking away and feeling like a failure and continuing and perhaps having permanent damage for the rest of your life. Right. You know, and I think everybody... Um, whether it's concussions within pro wrestling or whether it's uh, a job where you're away from your family a lot, uh, a lot of people can identify with that. I also think drug abuse is a huge issue within pro wrestling in the history. Now I think it's not quite so bad, but again, I don't really know on a mainstream level how, whether that's the case or not. I know they do test everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's never really been presented in a genuine and evolved manner within the industry. Um, I mean, can you think back? I mean, there was there was something with the guy from uh, Legion of Doom, Hawk, where right. he was drunk or something, and he climbed up a Titantron and <laughs> fell off the back. I mean, I'm telling you this, and you're laughing, because it, admittedly it's, it's absurd. Yeah. That something that plays such a big part of an industry has never been examined within the scripted universe. Mm -hmm. And I understand that people want to probably try and avoid that because they don't want to present any negative issues with the industry. And I get that 100%. And that's the beauty of what I have here. I have the ability, if this is funded through Kickstarter, I have the ability... Well, I have carte blanche to do whatever I want, talk about whatever I want. There's a storyline about homosexuality as well, something, again, that, that hasn't Woo-hoo! really been touched. Um, it's only 3%, but... Uh, uh, <laughs> I don't know if anybody picked that up, but just in case that sounded like a bizarre thing for me to say, Tim Chismar is in the room, and he Woo-hoo! went, woohoo when I mentioned homosexuality, and I had to draw attention to the fact that he's only 3% gay. <laughs> so there we go. I'm glad that we brought that up and that has added considerably. And that's Nick as well. So anyway, yeah, um, all joking aside, I do think that it is a, a serious issue in the sense that I don't think it's been presented um, with any broad strokes within pro wrestling. You know, I mean, this is 2015 and mm-hmm. homosexuality, thankfully, is the accepted norm, you know, um, at least among educated human beings. And, um, you know, I think there's a place to tell that story within pro wrestling. And that's certainly one of the goals that I want to do with this. That sounds awesome. I, as you were talking, I was trying to remember the, one of the current WWE stars named, I can't remember. Darren Young. Thank yeah. you very much. Yeah. And, uh, it seemed like when he, uh, you know, he, he came out and I, I remember I saw a, a quick little clip of, uh, John Cena on TMZ. Mm. He was saying, yeah, that's, you know, that's cool. You know, we're totally cool with that. And, and uh, for at least uh, you know maybe two or three weeks, he was uh, featured a little bit more on TV. Yep. They didn't bring attention to it, but you know I think they it was sort of a nod, like we know he's in the news and they, sure. they weren't hiding him. So that's cool. And then yeah. whether it's by design or not, uh, haven't really seen him on TV for a while. I know he's still with the company, right? And you know whether or not there's a, a correlation between that that and him being gay, you know who knows. But to your point. You know they have a a, a a you know homosexual superstar who was drawing a lot of attention in the media. Yeah. If they wanted to do something with it, sure, it was right in front of them. But the question really becomes in mind that within their demographic, how do they do that Certainly. when their demographic arguably is kids and and they're obviously is still part of their demographic that <laughs> yeah. probably doesn't agree yeah. that homosexuality is accepted and that, you know, you are going to go to hell for right. it. I mean, some people do believe that and you could make a case that you could turn off a lot of those fans. That doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. And again, that is the beauty of what I'm trying to do here is that I have the ability to do storylines that really a lot of other places can't do. And I think that it could show what is possible within the genre. So people can take this and maybe, maybe that's a, a subject that WWE doesn't want to talk about, mm-hmm. but maybe there's something else they could talk about i don't know all i know is there's a huge gap in the market and i know this will appeal to millions of people even if you're an mma fan and you don't necessarily like pro wrestling i did the verbal tap podcast which is an mma podcast and one of the other guys on there didn't really like pro wrestling um you know and so i kind of trying trying to sell him on it and that's why i called it la fights i didn't call it la pro wrestling or whatever else because i understand that if you're not a pro wrestling fan if you hear pro wrestling you go, Ugh, you know what I mean? And, and because of the, the stereotypes that have been there, and rightfully so, I find myself now, after 10 or 15 years within the industry, repeating a lot of the cliches that people have said to me that I always try to defend.
mind when I was younger, like it being fake or whatever else. A lot of times it really is. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it really is. You see someone on the outside of the ring and he's staggering around like he's had 17 pints after coming out of the pub at two in the morning while somebody stands on the top rope and he watches him jump and do a flip and land on top of him. It's fake as hell. And that's what I'm trying to get away from. You yeah. know, um, it's a fine line because you get too far away from it. Now it's not entertaining. You go too much in the opposite direction. Now it's very entertaining, but it's completely fake. And I think I found a happy medium. Yeah, it sounds like it. I was in, in the mid '90s, I want to say around '93 or '94, uh, was the first time I saw a mixed martial arts fight. I, and actually, at the time, I don't even think mixed martial arts had been coined as a term. Sure. So I think they were just calling it shoot fighting or something. Right. Um, but they, it was a. I think they were in Japan or something. But it was a pay per view out here. They were in a they were in a, a ring with you know, with the three ropes and the yeah. guys in there. So like, oh, this looks familiar, but they but they let us know like these guys are really fighting. It's like, oh, that this is that's always because as a kid, that's always what I wondered. Is like, mm. I love the wrestling, I understand what it is, but I wonder what it really looks like. Yeah. And of course, you know, to see guys really fighting doesn't look like the stories that they're telling in the ring. It's it, it's its own version of you know uh, entertainment. It's very compelling. Yeah. But it doesn't really look like that. Mm. And it sounds like that's the kind of fighting that you want to represent in this show. It is. And and I was heavily influenced by it. That was actually, I believe, UWFI or Pancraze, which Mm. was in Japan. Uh, That's where Ken Shamrock started out over there as Mm -hmm. well. Um, And that sort of realism, absolutely. But as I've been watching it now, and even for me as a fan of that, I'm bored by it. But Mm -hmm. you've got to ask yourself why. And this is what I've done in in developing the in-ring style. I've been doing jiu-jitsu for 18 months. I've been watching a ton of wrestling as well. And I go, now what is is, um, hindering this from being exciting to the average fan? Well, leg locks for a start. When you grab someone's leg, they grab your leg and then you're struggling and you're struggling. And if you don't really understand, you know, fighting, you don't understand what they're doing. They just look like they're hugging. Same thing. So I've tried to evolve the in-ring style so it is still realistic, but it's entertaining and digestible, which will come in with the the commentary as well. Um, to the fan that isn't necessarily a, a, a big MMA fan as well. It, it's a huge spectrum. I, I, I really think that this is so categorically different that people may watch it and go, well, it's not really pro wrestling. And that's fair enough. Mm-hmm. I don't care whether it's pro wrestling, whether it's MMA. All I know is it's a fantastic product. It's entertaining and it will really show what is possible within the genre. But again, um, LAFights.com. And if it doesn't get funded, then it doesn't happen. You know, and that's where we are. That's the world that we live in. Um, crowdfunding has kind of jumped the shark. Uh, and there's no way around it. I'm not one of these guys who's going to just go, you know, this is the greatest thing in the world and and Kickstarter is the way to do it and whatever else. <laughs> I believe you can't save your ass and your face at the same time. You know, you've got to be honest about the world that you live in. And the world that we live in, every day there's a new project on Kickstarter or Indiegogo and I was the same. You just you just scan through it, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? And you go, now you can watch Netflix for eight, $8 a month. And I'm trying to convince people to give me 30 or 40 bucks for a TV show that isn't going to be ready for another six months. It's a very <laughs> difficult sell, and I understand it 100%, yeah. but that is the creative nature of the world that we live in. Otherwise, we're going to be beholden on huge production companies um, and, and a lot of like input. And as we're seeing with WWE, arguably ever since you know Vince won the war and WCW went out of business and there was no competition, not there was much competition but when they went out, but right. nonetheless, um, there are so many people involved now. There are so many chefs that always fucking you know spoil the broth and the same thing in TNA you can say what you want about Vince Russo but every idea he had good bad or indifferent had to go through three or four other people before it came back to him to then go out on TV and as you know as a writer imagine if you wrote a book had to give it to three or four people (laughs) take every one of their pieces of influence take it back change it and then put it out again you couldn't do it you know like the stories have to come from one person I believe that wholeheartedly Mm -hmm. And, and Kickstarter and crowdfunding is really the only way for small independent artists to get their vision out there and seen by the masses as they envision. That's awesome. And I, I think I, I, everything you said I agree with in terms of uh, storytelling. I think that's why if we look at Hollywood and we look at movies, you know, the, you've got uh, the big studios yeah. and they're, you know, they're, uh, they're making movies for the, the, the largest amount of people they can get. And right. so, and so for that reason, because they're trying to please everybody, uh, if, they, you know, it, it might be, it might be kind of bland, might kind of fall flat, might be kind of corny, but you know, they're trying to reach everybody. Sure. And it would, it, it, it tends to be you know, the the indie films where you know a guy or a gal they have a singular vision, uh, they're working independently, they can make their 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 own movie, tell the story they want to tell. And for me, the probably the 
more times than not the best stories being told come from independent artists because sure. because as you said you know they're they're not beholding to to, to all these other you know, mm-hmm. you know executives or or producers or or whoever yeah um so again it's, it's another reason why I think this is going to be a, a terrific project um uh, but, but before we wrap up uh, I I was curious so so it's a six episode series mm. uh, should you succeed with the with the Kickstarter and and by all means I hope you do uh, what are where do you imagine that the final product will end up? Will people watch it online? Would you try to get a deal with Netflix? Like, what do you? What yeah, do you there are a few options open up to me, obviously. And again, it depends whether it gets funded or not. If it does get funded through Kickstarter, I have a lot more leeway. I have a lot more options with what to do with it. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, if I get this funded independently through other investors, then they're going to want to see a return on their money, sure. which means I can't just say, you know what, I want this to have a profound effect on the industry that I love. I want to put it on YouTube so everybody can see this. I'll monetize it so I'll make a little bit of money back. But that's what really this is about. Um, so that's one possibility, but not necessarily the, the, the number one possibility. Netflix, I think, has become such a, um, a staple mm-hmm. uh, of the way that people get content now. I think that would be a great home for it. But then even you know um, networks like um, FX um, or AMC, um, I think that they could certainly find a home then. And that's the reason why I'm asking for this sort of money. You know, people have said $370,000 <laughs> and that is a lot of money, but anybody that's worked in TV knows that $370,000 for six episode series is nothing. Mm-hmm. Like I should be asking for six times that amount, but I have a friend, a producer who helped me budget the script. And I said to him, look, I know I'm not going to get a million dollars to make this on Kickstarter. Tell me the minimum, the absolute minimum to where I can make this, not only just make it and make it a reality, but make it of a sufficient quality that I can do something with it. Because it's all well and good having a great idea, but if no one's going to touch it because, you know, the the color looks like shit and the sound, you can't hear it, forget about it. You know what I mean? So that was what the number we came up with, 370. Um, and I, um, yeah, I mean, I really think I'm ready to go. You know, I've done the hard work. That's the reality is that none of these ideas as you probably thought yourself, you probably had some of the ideas yourself, like why can't wrestling appeal to a more adult demographic oh, yeah. and, and why can't the in-ring style, whatever it is, but no one's put all these ideas together. No one's combined everything in one neat, concise package and said, this is how much it's going to cost to make it a reality. That's a lot of fucking work. Trust me. It took me 18 <laughs> months of my life to do it. Hundreds and hundreds of hours to make this a reality. And now I'm at the stage where all I need is the money and I can show you what is possible within the genre. So if you listen to this, if you love pro wrestling, if you don't love pro wrestling, if you used to love pro wrestling, if you love MMA, it doesn't matter. If you love great entertainment, this will be a great entertainment product um, only if it gets funded <laughs> and becomes a reality. Well, uh, I, I can guarantee you that uh, I'm definitely going to put uh, my money into this Kickstarter because I want to see this happen. Thank you. Uh, I, you know, uh, I, I wish I could give, give you 300000 if I had it, but I don't. Um, that said, uh, as we wrap up, I just want to thank you so much for your time, Nigel. This was a, a terrific, terrific honor to, to talk to you, both, you. The, both as a fan, but also just as a, somebody who um, I, I really greatly appreciate people who uh, they have a dream, they have a vision, they want to go after something and then they just fucking go after it. That, you know, I, you know, whether, whether someone achieves it or not, just going after a dream. I don't think there's, there's a few things I admire more than that. That's exactly what you're doing, which I think is super cool. Uh, one thing I didn't want to tell you at the beginning and luckily it didn't happen. My mom, I need to tell you, uh, has a little bit of a crush on you. And, uh, so I, she warned me last night that she might accidentally drop in to use the bathroom or something because, because <laughs> she knew I was going to be sitting down with you. So, uh, I don't want to say anything. We got through the whole conversation. She didn't pop in. <laughs> so, so that worked out. If you want to say hi to her, <laughs> Uh, her her name is her name is Kathy. If you want to say a quick hello, hello Kathy. I'm really devastated. I didn't get a chance to meet you, but I'm going to be here for another hour. So I know this won't air by then. <laughs> Pop in and say hello. I'll give you a hug. How about that? <laughs> All right, brother. Thank you so much, Nigel. Thank you, man. Appreciate your time. And it's lafights.com. I'm on Twitter at McGinnis Nigel. All over social media, lafights.com. Check it out. Back it. Thank you for your support. And there you have it. That was my conversation with WWE broadcaster Nigel McGinnis from all the way back on January 12th, 2015. And my memories of that conversation were of Nigel being very kind and very charming. And he he was genuinely tickled when I told him about my mom's little crush on him. Incidentally, back in 
2015 when I when I played my mom the audio of Nigel's message to her before the show actually aired. She squealed like a teenager. It was hilarious. I only wish Nigel could have been there to witness it himself. And again, of course, we now know that LA Fights did not get the funding that it needed and Nigel was ultimately not able to produce it. And while I'm I'm certain at the time Nigel was appropriately disappointed that uh, that LA Fights did not come to fruition like a great fairy tale, things worked out amazingly well for him and I couldn't be I couldn't be any happier for Nigel McGuinness that he's that he's now made it to the WWE. And again, you know, for anybody for for anybody who's living under a rock and you just don't fully understand it, the WWE, it's the biggest and most successful wrestling company in the world. In the whole history of humanity, there's never been a bigger, more successful wrestling company than the WWE. So, it's a it's a really big deal, and I'm really happy for Nigel. Now, before I wrap up here, uh, really quickly, just uh, want to remind you guys, if you have any shopping to do, you should do it on Amazon.com. You can do that first by going to the official website of this podcast, which you'll find at martinlestrapsshow.com. Once you're there, go to the shop page. You're going to see an Amazon banner at the top. Click that banner. It's going to take you to Amazon. From there, you can do all the same shopping you were otherwise going to do. But because you went through the official website of this podcast, Amazon in turn, they'll kick back a few pennies our way. And then we get to take those pennies and reinvest them into the show. And that allows us to make the Martin Lestrap Show podcast hour as good as we can possibly make it for you, which we strive to do week after week after week. Also, if you're not subscribed to the show, then uh, please go to iTunes and subscribe. It is free, and every week a new episode will drop into your iTunes list. It's like magic. It is my gift to you, and I'm happy to do it for you. Just go on in there and subscribe. If you're not an iTunes listener, which is cool, not everybody is, you can also catch the show on Stitcher Radio, which you can find at stitcher.com. And again, if neither one of those options does it for you, then you can catch the show the old-fashioned way by going to martinlestrapshow.com where all 163 episodes are available for you. And that's going to do it for episode number 163 of the Martin Lestrap Show podcast hour. I want to thank all of you for taking a trip with me on the Wayback Machine all the way back to episode number 50 with my guest Nigel McGinnis. And until next time... I will see you on the other side.